0: I-V-M. Why are
1: farmers marching on Mumbai? Can China become the hub of medical tourism for the next generation of treatments? Is democracy in danger in the Indian subcontinent?
0: Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly show on economics, public policy and international relations.
1: We are your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pawan Srinath. Hamsini and I realized that it's been a long time since we've caught up on the news and checked if there's anything to follow up on from past episodes. So first, let's talk about farmers marching on Mumbai. So nearly 50,000 farmers, if numbers are to be believed, marched on Mumbai uh, just a couple of days ago. And uh, it's been a very interesting protest in that the protest is very sensitive so they found out, for example, that I think kids had to go uh, for board to school exams. for board exams on Monday. So they decided to do the march on Sunday. So it's a very interesting movement that is happening and it's commanding a lot of attention. I mean, I can't fail to spot the irony here because uh, if you remember what P. Sainath has said in the past. Nero's guests. Uh, Nero's guests and also about... How farmers are dying in Vidarbha when fashion shows are happening in Mumbai. Mm. So I think there's a certain poignance that this is happening to Mumbai specifically as opposed mm. to anywhere else. Uh, this protest is coming on the heel of many other things. Uh, for example, the Tamil Nadu farmers marched in Delhi mm. and, you know, had a big um, uh, congregation on Ramlila Maidan and in other places uh, in the past to protest similar issues. So just to give you a few statistics about what's happening in Maharashtra over the last year, they did have a rainfall deficit. And let's look at a few numbers. Food grain production uh, during 2017-18 was Mm -hmm. down 14%. Uh, The production of pulses, all our dals, down 27%. Uh, Cotton, which got attacked by uh, a pest again, down 44%. Uh, Oil, seeds and vegetables down 18 and 14%. Everything's going around. Overall, the agricultural sector in Maharashtra, um, it sort of shrank by 12% uh, just And this is when
0: the monsoons have
1: been good? It wasn't particularly good for Maharashtra. Okay. So, monsoon being good is a general statement that mm. we can make, but it doesn't always make sense for local areas.
0: And what are the farmers protesting for?
1: So, it's a little bit of the usual, you know... Um, Farmers essentially face an immense amount of certainty. Uh, so the minimum support price becomes the this, this semblance of certainty that they can seek. Mm. So no matter what else happens, if you are sure farmers that I'm going to pay you this rate, then the farmers feel happier. So there's an ask for a higher minimum support price. The government has promised that the minimum support price will be cost of farming plus 50%. So that they at least get that much. But, you know, this is tough to finance usually. Mm. So they're asking for the minimum support price. There are people who are asking for land under the Forest Rights Act, Mm. which was supposed to, uh, you know, give ownership of land to, you know, tribals and traditional... Uh, dwellers in various areas, and, uh, you know, a few related things. Hmm. And uh, this the list of asks and demands have not been very different across farmer agitations in the past. By and large, this has Hmm. been the same over the last few years.
0: And we've also spoken about how some of these things are problematic, right? We've spoken about how price flaws and price ceilings never make for good economic sense at the beginning of 2018.
1: So uh, the first thing I want to say about this is that You know how uh, there are many countries, say, in Europe and the Americas and so on, you have unemployment-related protests, right? So Mm -hmm. you look at, for example, what happened in Greece. Uh, A lot of the protests came from a large number of people being effectively unemployed. And when you have young people who are unemployed, that can Mm -hmm. lead to dangerous problems. India, however, whether you look at the official numbers or not, has never had large unemployment-led riots in the, at least in the recent past. One can argue that some of the protests in the 80s were fueled by rising unemployment Mm -hmm. by, especially among the educated. Hmm. You know, from mandal to other things, because you didn't have enough jobs, but at least one generation of Indians had become educated, yeah, uh, college-educated. Yeah, then, enough. but since then, we we don't see any of that happening right now. We hmm. talk about how we need uh, you know 20 million jobs created year on year hmm. uh, to meet the needs of uh, India's uh, young population, but clearly that is not happening. Hmm. And I think the hidden answer is agriculture. So you will keep hearing statistics that 50% of India is employed in agriculture. Not really. They're not really employed. Uh, one of the things that has been well understood now is even those who are calling themselves farmers uh, are getting an increasing share of their income from non-farm sources.
0: Like, I, I you know, understand. they
1: might be doing something else. they might be a day laborer somewhere else. They might work in a service industry. They might come and spend mm-hmm. a month in a city and go back. Or even if they're in their own village, they'll do things that are not linked to farming to earn a living. And the farming doesn't seem to be giving too much. So in a sense, I think when people are protesting, they might be asking for a minimum support price. But I think at the heart of it, it's an unemployment
0: So you're saying they're
1: protesting for better jobs. Yes. So I think Amit Verma, our uh, editor, has written quite a bit on this. Uh, In fact, the first ever episode of the Seen and the Unseen podcast with Amit was on this topic of agriculture where uh, I and uh, Karthik Shashida went on to talk about this. The farmers lack freedoms. Mm. Uh, The first freedom a farmer lacks is the freedom to stop being a farmer. Like, many people are trapped therein and then unable to get out in a meaningful way. Mm. Uh, Already, if you see uh, the age profile of farmers, anyone who's young has already left the profession. They've come to a city or they've gone on to do other things. Uh, But what's happening is, say you're a farmer, you own three, four acres of land and you you know, you have a skill set, you have a past uh, and a track record you're unable to sell that land properly and gain the benefit of that land before moving on to the next thing, right? So, what happens is because farmland is classified as farmland, Hmm. they can only sell it to another farmer. You know, uh, the other person who is buying has to be a farmer Hmm. and the use has to be farming. So, the value of that land accrues to the person who can change that land use, not to the farmer. Okay. Right. So, in fact, uh, people have seen trends globally where if you have one or two generations of uh, people doing farming successfully, Hmm. right, or a big bumper crop or Hmm. something, that's enough capital for that farmer to now move on from farming. Hmm. Hmm. Right. They rarely reinvest. And even in India, in a few places, once you have a bull run, say, uh, a while ago, you had people in Rajasthan growing guar. Okay. Uh, guar is, I think, clustered beans, if I'm not mistaken. We call it gorika in Canada.
0: Okay, okay, yeah. So,
1: so this thing had a gelatinous substance which was, uh, essential for the shale industry. Oh. So as shale was booming in the US, fracking was going on. Um, Rajasthan farmers were, I think, had cultivated 20,000 or 30,000 hectares of just guar. You know, people were buying cars and building houses and doing a lot mm. just by selling this. And then the boom gets busted, mm. right? So the idea is that hopefully they can move on to something in manufacturing mm. or something else. And our biggest failure as a country has been not providing these freedoms to farmers.
0: Yeah, I think uh, one thing that our listeners can do is go check out our second brainstorm on the crisis in Indian agriculture. Because we have about 10 articles that address a lot of these issues.
1: Right. And a lot of the times the issues are underlying. So the demands are for something, but the true structural solution for it is something else. Hmm. So having that conversation, you know, farmers need a freedom to sell. Hmm. Uh, Often in many states where the old APMC or mandi laws are still applying, Hmm. that local Sarkari mandi has a monopoly over buying or sale of that product. Hmm. So if someone sells vegetables to even a neighbor, Hmm. to say you go sell it, technically it's illegal. Right? So you have men's set of problems where, you know, the way liberalization has touched, uh, you know, so many parts of urban life. Mm. You know, companies could do what they wanted to, you know, the services industry took off. That liberalization has never, ever hit agriculture. Mm. And so now the disparity is even starker. So, you know, one can be hopeful that this protest uh, results in something meaningful, but even that would be if, you know, a few more loans get waived off or a little more something of something is done. None of these solutions are sustainable.
0: Because we need long-term structural reforms. In yeah, our so
1: we need, we need people to be able to buy and sell land uh, easily. We need uh, farmers to be able to uh, sell their produce in the way they want. Uh, farmers should be able to get into contracts with, say, Pepsi or uh, someone else to make uh, potatoes of the right type for the chips uh, hmm. that are used. Uh, farmers should be able to form a company, right? That's the big thing. Yeah. Imagine like in any other field, mm. if you were uh, not allowed to form a company to work, mm. all that risk, you know, of uh, of prices, of the weather, everything is borne by an individual and they can't handle it. So, and uh, to an extent that, you know, people end up taking extreme steps. So it's high time that farmers get the freedoms that they deserve. And it's high time that some of these narratives are craft politically. For example, when the Swatantra Party was in full swing in the 60s, one of the big leaders was N.G. Ranga, hmm. a farm leader. Right? Okay. So it was not, while Swatantra Party was painted as this party of, you know, rich industrialists and intellectuals, it did have grassroots farmers who wanted freedom hmm. of various kinds. So I think uh, we have to return to that if we really want to solve some of these agricultural problems.
0: You know, Pavan, farmers are not the only people who are protesting Uh, across the Indian subcontinent, there have been protests erupting all over. Uh, In Sri Lanka, for example, um, a mob set fire to a bunch of mosques and shops um, in Kandy and a bunch of villages. So Sri Lanka is under a 10-day emergency now. And we'll actually get to know today if the emergency is going to be continued
1: or uh, uh, whether it's going to be stopped. This was violence against... uh, um Sri Lankan Muslims, or was it against uh, refugees? or what was this?
0: So this was against Sri Lankan Muslims, uh, who make up about nine nine point six percent of the population, and it was primarily done by Sinhalese Buddhists. Okay. Um,
1: so and these uh, Muslims also happen to be Tamil, right? Predominantly.
0: Yeah. So the, their ethnicity is uh, interesting because they called Sri Lankan Moors, and uh, historically they have been Th- Tamilian, like they speak the language, even though. Uh, uh, they Over the last two, three decades, they've been claiming um, that they've come from Saudi Arabia um, and the Middle East in general. But uh, they still speak Tamil predominantly, okay. um, which is interesting. What's striking about all of this is that uh, this is not the first protest against Muslims. It, it, late last year, um, a shelter for Rohingya refugees in the capital was again stormed. Um, and there's been a lot of growing resentment against them. Uh, and all of this comes under the context of the fact that Sri Lanka f- has spent more time in emergency than it has out of emergency. So okay. it was an emergency till 2009. And it's only through the na- last nine years that it's been out of emergency since the civil war there ended. Um And again... Another backdrop that's coming is the larger political backdrop. There's a coalition government in Sri Lanka right now. Mm-hmm. So the prime minister and the president are from different parties. And they've been having a lot of spats for the last couple of months. And amidst this, their major opposition leader, Rajapaksha, um, has won the local polls. And he's called for the entire government to resign. Um So it gets you wondering whether um it's a sort of... um diversion from the politics that's
1: going on. Right. It could also be that, you know, for the longest time there was the emergency. So in a sense, uh, the Sri Lankan democracy was all about who could take on the LTT threat better. Right? Hmm. Now with the LTT gone and sort of some amount of uh, political engagement of the Tamils in Sri Lanka also political tension has to go somewhere, right? So there needs to be a new cleavage line of some sort.
0: Yeah, it needs to be directed at something, it needs to find new issues. And uh, I think this is a larger trend that's happening across countries where you uh, other a particular group of people, right? Where, uh, where it's easier to build fault lines along ethnic lines, for example. Um so, that is protests in Sri Lanka. And other country that's uh, been seeing protests is not in the immediate Indian subcontinent, but a little further away in Seychelles. So, uh, what's been happening is that in 2015, India and Seychelles um, signed an agreement to build some facilities on this island called Assumption Island, which is beautiful, you know, okay. Seychelles. Assumption a, Island. Assumption wow. Island. Um, so, they signed the agreement in 2015. And uh, I remember that in 2017, the financial, uh, the MEA's uh, budget, we were able to see that those funds were actually um, allotted for. So, um, in 2018, they revised that document.
1: Okay. Uh, So, all this was in secret in 2015?
0: Technically, they're highly classified documents because uh, a lot of these are supposed to be sensitive in nature. Uh, We're not sure of what technology is being transferred and that's what's come under the lens now. So, in early March, there was a leak of the documents the day before the Seychelles government was going to ratify the agreement. Okay. So, um, and then protests broke out saying, you know, you're selling the Seychelles sovereignty and you're selling Seychelles government. And um, the opposition was immediately saying, you know, make the agreement public to everyone. Okay. And uh, what the Seychelles government was trying to say is that a lot of details of this agreement are sensitive, which is why we can't make them public.
1: Okay. Um, was there a China hand here as well, the way there's a China hand... Not just China hand, hand, leg and body in the Maldives uh, case.
0: Uh, There's none discernible, but uh, there's always this element of um, this China-India rivalry in some part of the Indian subcontinent now. And we know that um, China prefers governments with which whom the job can get done. And that doesn't necessarily have to be democratic. Right. So again, um, there are protests ongoing within the Seychelles government and the parliament right now, which is in session. And it will be interesting to see how that turns out as well.
1: And typically the establishment in uh, any of these countries, you know, Seychelles, Mauritius, Maldives, even Sri Lanka. Uh, they will have some sort of an equation with India, right? I mean, historically, they would have had one, they would have had cordial relations, not just cordial relations, but deep engagement on a certain few topics.
0: Yes, of course. And so
1: whenever China wants to play a role, they would want to, one of their options would be to overthrow the existing establishment, right? In some way. Fair enough. I mean, if you
0: look at all the protests that happened in Sri Lanka over the Hambantota port, right? Um, These protests were led by the Rajapaksha after he was in government but during his tenure in government he was the one who signed all those deals right um so what's happening is that the small countries look at it as a good way that finally people are taking notice of them right money is finally flowing in and it's been difficult so they're sort of hedging these countries against each other to just see who will get the best bet for them? Because that is the bargaining power is all they have to deal with larger countries. It's not like they have huge military power, right? Right. Um, So that's what they want. And on the other hand, China wants to look for, you know, a foot in the door. Um, so those are the games that are
1: playing. in. So the that continent. played out in Nepal a while back?
0: Yes, it played out in Nepal. And it's still interesting because the new um, Prime Minister, K.P. Oli, is now in government. And I think uh, he made a statement last week saying Nepal is not going to take any external interference from any powers. Um, yeah, who
1: will say that we will take, take external interference? External <laughs> in, um, no, external I think what
0: the translates is to we will not take external interference from India or the EU or the US, but we might take external interference from China, depending on the deal. Um, you, that's how it works out, right? I'm not going to go on stage and see otherwise.
1: Right. So so we, we covered quite a few of our neighbors, right? So there's Maldives, Seychelles is a slightly more distant neighbor. Uh, you've had uh, things going on in Nepal. Uh, Sri Lanka and also Bangladesh.
0: Yes, in Bangladesh, this is
1: uh, last month when
0: uh, the opposition leader, the head of the Bangladesh National Party...
1: Khalidazia, right? Yes,
0: Khalidazia was imprisoned for corruption. Um, And this is interesting because in 2018, you're going to have the national elections. So the uh, incumbent government under Sheikh Hasina is looking to win a bigger mandate. And a lot of people are saying that the BNP is going to pull off elections, which is what they did last time when they were sure that they were going to lose. Um, and Zia has recently let out on bail and she's saying she's still
1: going to uh, boycott the elections. So... Uh, I just want to take a moment to mention how weird Bangladeshi elections are. Mm-hmm. So, and how it sort of gets normalized in uh, some contexts as well. So in India, you run elections just as a government is still in power, Hmm. right? So you, even though the government of the day has the government's machinery at its disposal and also does use it to a certain extent to promote advertisements of some sort, Hmm. you sort of allow that to happen and you have elections. In uh, Bangladesh, the army has to take over control from the existing government for there to be elections. And I think last time this did not happen. This did not happen because the BNP boycotted the elections.
0: But it's happened before
1: that. Uh, No, the BNP uh, boycotted the elections because uh, this did not happen. Yes. Saying that the incumbent government has too much power and Mm. too much influence. Mm. And, uh, you know, there there was global protest also or global uproar also about this, which is ridiculous. Right? Why does the army need to come and take over the government just for free and fair elections?
0: Yes. And, you know, there's also charges of saying, you know, these charges are trumped up, uh, the charges of corruption. Uh, but political parties have always known to get the back of each other. I think in the 2000s, there were assassination attempts, there were grenades thrown. Um, so democracy is definitely uh, facing a mess. in So the in a sense, conflict.
1: when you have a fragile state, or I don't want to use those terms because they're loaded, whenever your state lacks capacity in certain ways, or it's hmm. still nascent, hmm. there's all kinds of tit-for-tat that happens within politics that you would otherwise only see in international affairs, right? So... At one level of tit-for-tat is assassination. Hmm. And then you lower the tempo a little to I will throw you in jail versus you will throw me in, in jail. jail. Yes. And then you lower that down to something else. Hmm. right? Or you go after somebody's assets. Or- True.
0: Maybe this is how democracies are maturing. Um, because it seems like a process. Because they are a natural democracies. And though it's been a while, state capacity has been a huge problem for all these
1: countries um, through the ages. So to sort of bring it all together... We are having sort of democratic pangs that are happening or undemocratic pangs that are happening in many parts of the Indian subcontinent. Let's not get into what's happening in India, because that's a different beast. Let's
0: not. But what I will say is, um, earlier, I had recorded a podcast with Rory Metcalf and Constantino Xavier. Rory Metcalf was talking about smart power, which is a new sort of power that uh, countries could use to meddle in the elections of other countries. And I think this was in episode 30. And Constantino Xavier was talking about um, South Asia and generally Indian foreign policy, towards them. So I think that would be a good place to start off um, if you want to figure out what's happening today in the Indian subcontinent. Right. Okay, Pawan, you've also been reading something that's China related, right? Is it about geopolitics?
1: Uh, so I'll come to China in a bit. So in episode 24, we had Shambhavi Nayak and Madhav Chandavarkar join us to talk about gene editing, Hmm. right? And things like CRISPR and Cas9, which is this new technology where we can have a new generation of, you know, genetic uh, therapies that can help solve everything from cancer to, you know, uh, inherited diseases to Hmm. other things. Hmm. Now... um, I want to talk to you about this one crazy biohacker, okay? This guy called Josiah Zainer, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. In 2017, at a conference, Josiah injected himself with a cocktail of drugs that he had made himself, which were supposed to build more muscles.
0: That sounds straight out of a horrible Bollywood movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know Bollywood or Hollywood, but the idea is that... The science broadly makes sense. So the idea, we know a few genes linked to what causes more muscle growth and more muscle mass. So he wanted to mutate that gene or target it in some way. And he had made this kit to uh, using CRISPR and Cas9 himself. And he injected himself live. Did he get big muscles? Um, we're not really sure. <laughs> okay. But we uh, what we did see in the last uh, a few weeks is that he publicly regretted doing this. Not because he died or won a Darwin Award, but because this has set off a trend. There are all kinds of people online who are injecting themselves with self-made concoctions, typically with a gene editing um, drug. The stupidity of the internet never fails to amaze you. I mean, just for context, there is not a single gene therapy drug out in the market. Uh, There are a few clinical trials that have just about started in the U.S. and elsewhere. It's a very nascent thing and it's very subjective, you know, uh, based on your genetic profile. Like, for example, Indians will have slightly different genes from people living in the U.S. Uh, So your gene therapy has to be customized for your gene pool. Because we might have different allergic reactions to someone else. And each time you have to see if the therapy works. If, you know, a thing that you can replicate in a test tube in a lab is actually medicine grade that you can use on a human without side effects. Very, very nascent. But people are using it as a wild west
0: and that's going to take decades to actually come right i mean i mean
1: ethically. yes typically a full on clinical trial process takes anywhere from 10 years and more and you will reject a lot of the things that you'll start with and so mm-hmm. it's a long process right so uh, typically things that people have been talking about in the lab will take 15 20 years to get to the market and but it's it's a brave new world out there so uh, let me just uh, say this here uh, this guy Josiah, expressed regret after crazy video that came out a guy called Aaron Travik. Okay, he's the CEO of a bio startup.
0: Okay,
1: apparently. And again, he injected himself live with a herpes cure that he came up with. Okay, not just that, but this company that he um, started uh, a I mean, it has allowed other people to do this too. So there was someone who um injected themselves with an untested HIV treatment with someone who un- injected themselves with a therapy for lactose intolerance so from the serious to the absurd from like bodybuilding to HIV cures people are trying this stuff out on their own okay and clearly i mean it's it's bonkers but uh, this whole movement of biohacking is that, you know, people are saying, look, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., the government will only fund certain things, will only care about certain things. They're very jacketed and bureaucratic. And so we, the hackers, we, the biohackers, don't believe in the establishment. And we'll make this stuff on our own. We'll democratize uh, this technology. No, 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 no. Okay. So you, I mean, think of this. I mean, we are probably at a moment, um, you know, similar to how sort of cyber hacking started maybe 30, 40 years ago. It's tough to tell biotech and cyber tech comparisons have always been flawed. But, you know, there was the idea that at one point you needed an ENIAC or some big machine. Mm. IBM could only own it mm. and people would be geeks doing programming. But the moment computers became cheap enough, you had all kinds of guys hacking together all kinds of things.
0: True, but cyber hacking doesn't involve you to be the subject of your own research or...
1: Yeah, I mean at worst you could fi- uh, fry your computer. Yeah, right? Or uh, get into trouble for for fraud or something else. Here you're messing with your own life or with somebody else's life. life. And that's the second part. Okay, so you have crazy people in the US and elsewhere doing this. And um, um Shambhavi Nayak who's just joined Takshashila uh, wrote this in Mint recently called a Tale of Two Hospitals. Okay. okay, so she compares how again in the University of Pennsylvania there's a drug therapy using CRISPR technology which has just about started getting clearances. Okay. okay, So it's been a long time pending. There's a lot of approval. So if you want to do this right in the US, uh, you need to have a hospital ethics committee which reviews and approves this. You need to apply to the National Institutes of Health, the FDA, a whole bunch of people need to give you clearance. And they'll need a lot of information before allowing you to do something. At the same time, in Hangzhou Cancer Hospital in China, China. You have uh, CRISPR also being used to conduct clinical trials. Except, again, I think they're for cancer or basically what is done is people, your blood is extracted, uh, your immune cells, you know, your white cells are extracted, the T cell part of the white cells are uh, removed. Those are genetically modified and then they're put back into your system. And now these modified cells can go attack a cancer. They can go attack, they know how to recognize a cancer and go attack it. Okay, this is the theory. But... China is doing it in a similar Wild West fashion. You need no governmental approvals to do this. Your hospital should have a committee. And basically what these guys did was they called together their committee, which was a bunch of doctors, I think a lawyer, maybe a patient, rights person. And they just screened a one-hour video saying, look, this is our treatment. Do you guys think it's a good idea? They said yes. And they started the treatment. And patients in China... Uh, who who are going for this. Many of them are, of course, terminal patients. They're in a bad plight. There's no other um, uh, recourse. And they're essentially told, this is a new therapy. It might help. Go. And that's it. So you have uh, both crazy individuals in the West and the entirety of China uh, essentially conducting experiments with potentially extremely dangerous consequences, but with no recourse. Right. So now... Neither extreme is good, right? So now there is a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of regulations around this. And there are people who are doing wild things with it. Mm. So there really is an opportunity. And India, by the way, has really not said anything yet. Mm. We don't really have guidelines on how to do this. So people are unsure whether to invest in this. Uh, And so we have to figure out what middle path to take, which is which still tries to put down the right kind of measures and rules in place, but is still flexible enough that people can experiment and do the right thing. Uh, so, but it's truly nuts what's happening in the world with biotechnology.
0: Wow, I'm stunned.
1: That,
0: this is very, You're is a loss for words? <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> very incomprehensible to me. Kids don't try this at home. Especially biology students do not try this at home.
0: That's it for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. You can listen to the Pragati Podcast on the IBM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts from. And of
1: course, on thinkpragati.com. If you want us to follow up on any other past episodes or topics that we have covered, just drop in a mail to podcast at thinkpragati.com. We'll be
0: back next week. The Pragati Podcast is an IVM production. And if you like our show, you can also check out their other shows, like Akanksha Against Harassment. Hosted by Akanksha Srivastava, this show discusses cyber crimes and online harassment. And it aims to make the internet a safe space. New episodes out every Thursday on IVM Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts from.
1: As you can see, We have a podcast listener in his natural habitat. Millions of years of evolution have led him to this point. He's on his way to work and listening to podcasts makes his miserable day better. He will now head to work and use all his knowledge to communicate with other colleagues and possibly future mates. You can find more of his species on ivmpodcasts.com, your one-stop destination where you can check out All the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.